Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. If you had told me four years ago that I was going to be sitting down with Mitt Romney for an hour-long conversation, I would have told you you were nuts. But we've actually gotten to know each other over the last uh, few years, and while we still disagree on many things, we've had some really good conversations. One of them was today, and I want to share it with you. I'm here with uh, Governor Romney, um, who was the presidential nominee in 2012, and I have to confess, um, I was not a supporter back then. I'm, I'm making... Shocking. Yes. Absolutely shocking. But... Uh, since that time, I got to meet your splendid uh, chief of staff, Beth Myers, who's now on the board of the Institute of Politics. And uh, you and your wife, Anne, were generous enough to invite my wife, Susan, and I out to talk to, to your conference, to your donor conference about epilepsy research, which, because of my daughter, Lauren, is a, a big cause for us. And you've come to our IOP, uh, and I've been back to your conference to talk politics. I did feel a little... I was worried that I was going to be like Michael Vick at an ASPCA convention, <laughs> but uh, you guys treated me very well. I had safe, uh, uh, safe passage all throughout, and it was a, it was a good conversation. Um, but this will shock you. We actually have something uh, pretty big in common. One of my uh, childhood heroes was your dad, mm. George Romney. Mm-hmm. I was a young kid. I was very interested in politics. I was very much into the civil rights movement, and uh, we also had a rambler, so... Uh, wow, wow. Yes. This is uh, really something. Uh, which he, of course, pioneered as an auto executive. Yeah. Said he, he, he fought the dinosaur gas guzzlers, is what yeah. he said, and we had one of those cars. But I really admired him because he fought valiantly for the concept of equal rights for African Americans, and uh, that was a big... Uh, part of his leadership in Michigan and uh, beyond it. HUD ran afoul of uh, President Nixon and some of his folks because he pushed so hard for desegregation. Uh, tell me about him in that regard. What makes him, uh, what made him um, such a uh, uh, maverick in, 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 on some of these issues? He was really a progressive force within the Republican Party. You know, um, I don't know that he thought of himself as being involved politically at all. I mean, he was a car guy, uh, as you know, born in Mexico, uh, came to this country uh, poor, um, didn't graduate from college, 
got a job, his first job working uh, for a Democrat senator from Massachusetts, actually, and uh, ultimately became kind of an expert in trade policy and, and got hired by the uh, Aluminum Company of America to work for them. Uh, found himself working in the auto industry ultimately and, and rose to the top of a car company. Uh, but as we sat down at the dinner table, and by the way, back in the 1960s, that's what you did. Uh, you sat at the dinner table every night, and we would have long discussions about the economy, about cars, about politics, about what was happening in the country, about the president. Um, that's just what we did. And I, I, you know, I, I saw him very concerned about a few critical political issues. One was education in America and in Detroit. He was very concerned about Detroit schools and, um, uh, and ultimately became involved with a major project to try and revamp the school uh, system in, in, in Detroit. Number two, he was concerned about what he used to call concentrations of economic power, uh, both corporate power, concerned about big companies. He said GM, for instance, should be split up, concerned about the power of big companies, concerned about the power of big unions, and felt that uh, America needed to have those concentrations taken apart. So I would hear these things at the dinner table. So having him actually get involved in politics was not something which came as a great shock to me. He, he basically took what he'd been saying at the dinner table uh, to the public arena. And much to our surprise, um, he was successful at it. You know, uh, my recollection was and that he, and history will show, that he... He took on Barry Goldwater mm. at the 64 convention. And one of the big issues was uh, over the Civil Rights Act, felt that uh, uh, Republicans should have supported that. He didn't want a nominee who uh, opposed it. Um, as I mentioned, he, um, you know, he, he fought uh, within the Nixon administration for desegregation to the point that it discomfited some of the political people mm. uh, mm-hmm. in the administration. He made a lot of waves as famously for saying that after visiting Vietnam that he had been that he had been brainwashed in, in, in supporting it and that he thought it was a failed uh, enterprise. Um, he was uh, he was out as outspoken as anyone in, on the American political scene. W- what did you learn from watching him? Uh, Jack Kennedy once said, this is the guy I don't want to run against, but he never became president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And partly it was because he was so outspoken and so willing to challenge orthodoxy within his own party. What did you take away from all of that? And did you have conversations about that? Did you ever say, Dad, maybe you shouldn't have said that? <laughs> uh, you, you know, you didn't, um, you didn't second-guess Dad. Uh, you could argue with him before the fact, but you didn't go back and try and uh, <laughs> revisit what had already happened. And, uh, and, and with him, I mean, he had such fundamental guiding principles that he never varied from them. And one of them was that all people were created equal, that we're all sons and daughters of the same God, that God loved all of his children, and that it was simply unthinkable that in the United States of America that that African Americans would not have the same opportunities and the same prospects uh, for, for happiness as, as white Americans. But even within the Mormon church, and he, he, he was a devout practitioner hmm. of his faith, the church itself took a position against some of his uh, initiatives in Michigan. Uh, I mean, that must have been extraordinarily difficult for him. Well, the church didn't take any political views that I can recall that related to the kinds of things he was dealing with. The church was always very happy with him, and, and he was given extraordinary responsibilities as a leader in the yeah, church. Yeah, no, I understand. I, I, but, I, just but read the theolo- some, I just read somewhere, actually, mm-hmm. about them 
specifically take uh, there was a specific piece of legislation that he passed in Michigan and there was a some sort of position uh taken but there's no doubt that he was ahead of the church on issues of of race is that fair well, to say there, there's no question but that his his view was that all men and women are created equal and, and loved by God and that is also the position of the church. So in that regard, they're very much on the same page. Um, but he was concerned that our party, uh, being at that time led by Barry Goldwater in 1964, that that would be confused and that there would be some who would, would oppose uh, equal rights for all citizens. And, uh, and he was a staunch supporter of, of uh, equal rights for citizens and, and was involved in a very aggressive way in, in Michigan where he was governor to one appoint the first civil rights commission in in any state. He did so, um, uh, put in Democrat and Republican leadership into that effort and made, I think, extraordinary strides to try and heal the racial divide. It's still got a long way to go. And he certainly didn't didn't uh, heal the divide entirely. But that was a great passion of his from the, the very beginning of his political involvement. What about the Vietnam uh, quote, what, what was going on around the dinner table around that time? Well, he, you know, he was uh, absolutely right. I mean, he went to, to Vietnam and and felt that the statistics he was given, the things he w- was being shown by by military advisors there, gave a very one-sided view and an inaccurate view. And that the, Which has now basically been confirmed right, by his, history. Right. And, and, the, and that the, the Department of Defense was, was providing false statistics to the American people and basically lying to the American people. So he came back and said, look, you know, I've been brainwashed over there in Vietnam. The American people are being brainwashed by our, by our military. And, and his opponents and the media jumped on this. Oh, Romney says he's brainwashed. How could we have a president who's been brainwashed? And, and they belittled him and diminished him. I think he could have weathered that storm. But I think he felt that uh, he needed to get out of the way and let someone else take on Richard Nixon, who he thought would not be the ideal president. Um, and the ideal His history was uh, He happened good to be pre- prescient on that. Yeah, yeah. So on this one, uh, the, the bra- one word, yeah. one word. And it changed his oh, his. He, and what he, did that teach you was, as a candidate? He was leading in the polls, and and he what did that teach said, you later when you were? Did you ever think back to that and say, "I've got to be I a did, little careful about what I say"? Well, you clearly recognize in politics that that everything you say can and will be used against you <laughs> in the court of public opinion, and uh, and there are things you say, you go, "Gosh, I wish I could have said that differently. I wish I could take that back." I'm sure he wished he could forty seven percent differently. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 there's no question, but that that those things come back to to hurt you and haunt you. And it happens on both sides of the aisle. For sure. Uh, particularly now. Um, I mean, he was but, fortunately, or, or maybe I shouldn't give him the excuse, but you know, he was being interviewed on TV when he said brainwashed. Uh, but today, you're always being interviewed. Well, I mentioned Every, 47% thing. That was, everywhere you go, you're on tape. There's a, there's not, there's a tape. There's someone there with a flip phone or with a, an iPhone that's capturing every word. And so you're not as careful about phrasing things the way you really want to phrase them. You're a little quick, you're flip, you're, uh, and that's, I think people recognize that's just not possible anymore. As a matter of fact, when I was thinking of running again, I said to someone, you know, if I run again, I want to have someone from our staff videoing everything I say during the entire race. Anytime I'm in the public, I want to have a video being taken so I have the context and I can use that if someone springs something. 
Uh, and I think that's but it also would discipline you. I assume knowing that it, dis- it disciplines you to make sure that you're saying it exactly right. You're not just being uh, casual. It's or hard tired. though. It's hard when you're going twenty hours. Got to always it? be on. And and you know you do ten speeches a day or ten meetings a day, and people ask all sorts of questions. And sometimes you don't think them through carefully, and you get tangled up in your words, and something comes out in a way you don't mean. The uh, your dad. Uh, your son Tag in this one uh, wonderful movie Mitt that they uh, came out after the race, which was a very intimate document, a documentary about your six years of running for the White House. Uh, said that your dad uh, told you not to get into politics. Yeah, yeah. Why did he tell you not to get into politics? Uh, well, you won't like this. As a guy who loves politics, you'll be concerned about this. But he said, Mitt, <laughs> don't ever get in politics until or unless you're independent financially. And your kids have been raised. And I said, why? And he said, well, if your kids haven't been raised, if you get elected to office, it may turn their head. They may think there's something special because their dad is a congressman or a state senator or whatever. And that may influence their development. And he said, in terms of independent financially, he said, you don't want to be in a position where to pay your mortgage, you've got to win the election. Because it might cause you to say things you don't really believe. And... uh, uh, so I never imagined I'd get involved in politics because I, I never imagined that I'd be independent financially. I knew my kids would get raised someday, well, but I didn't think that, that... Good news, I think you've made it. Yeah, I mean, well, as Donald Trump has pointed out, I'm not rich, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, actually I am rich, but not as rich as him, uh, but I'm independent financially, and that allowed me to get uh, into, the, uh, into the political sphere. So running for president's the hardest thing there is, and we've talked about this before uh, your wife, Anne, was diagnosed with uh, multiple sclerosis in uh, 1998, I guess. Yes. Um, and so that made it an, uh, even more difficult, I suppose, to make these decisions, knowing the burden, uh, in terms of running for office, knowing the burden this places on family. Mm. Well, I, I, that was critical for me, which is I would not have uh, been involved in politics if Anne or I or her doctors felt that my involvement politically and her involvement on the campaign trail would in any way affect or hurt her, uh, her multiple sclerosis and its prognosis. And, and our doctors said that that is just not a consideration so long as Anne doesn't overdo it, doesn't stay out late at night or make too many speeches or get herself in a, in a setting where she's just under extraordinary stress. And fortunately, um, she has been uh, healthy uh, pretty much during this entire uh, political uh, uh, portion of my life. Although there were a couple of times she has admitted now, after the campaign was over, that she was uh, beginning to feel the effects of the disease and had to back off. And had I known it, I'd have been much more aggressive in backing her off. Let me take you back to uh, to that moment when you got that diagnosis. I remember when I when Susan called me to tell me that she had cancer and I remember when my daughter had her first seizure and we had never seen one before. Um, what was it like when you heard that Anne had MS? Well, we learned together because uh, she had been complaining that her right leg was a little numb in one spot on her thigh. And then the numbness kept getting larger. More and more area of her, of her leg and ultimately part of her abdomen were just, just numb and uh, feeling sort of dead to her. And, and so she called her brother, who's a physician, an ophthalmologist, actually, and, and told, her, told him her symptoms. And he said, well, you ought to see a neurologist. Uh, 
So we made an appointment together with a neurologist and went there. And when we came in and, and sat down, we saw some brochures on his table. And one brochure was on ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Another was on Parkinson's disease. Another was on multiple sclerosis. And we looked at each other and said, this is not looking good. And we went into his office and, and he put her through a number of tests. And, uh, and then he said, I, I think this is probably uh, MS. I can't be sure, but we need to do more tests. And he stepped out of the room and uh, Ann and I both broke down. Uh, we hugged each other. Uh, but recognized that uh, our life had changed uh, forever. And um, I did say to Anne at that time, I said, you know, as long as it's not fatal, we can handle it. We can do this together. And the only thing we have to hope and pray is that this is not a fatal condition like ALS. How people deal with that uh, prognosis, I don't know. And did you, I, how did it change you, do you think, having, you, you, you've had, now you did almost get killed once in a car accident. You've got a good memory. Uh, but, uh, but generally, you've had a lot of luck in your life. No question about that. I had extraordinary parents and a, and a, and a gifted uh, upbringing uh, with, uh, with great prosperity and a wonderful education. And things went pretty well. I think most people in their lives, things seem to go pretty well until they until don't. They don't yeah. And and in this case, this was the perhaps the greatest shock. We'd had children that had been sick. And yes, I'd been in a very severe automobile accident. But with an accident, if you come out alive, you know you'll ultimately heal and, and get back to normal. But with a, a disease like MS, uh, you know that you're forever changed, that, that Anne will always have this uh, hanging over her and will pre- be progressively weaker and weaker. And, and able to do less and less in her life. And so your plans change. And in some respects, you cling more uh, desperately to the things you love and care about. And you recognize the, the real currency in life. It's, uh, it's not fame and fortune. It is the people that you love uh, and that you care about. When you did health reform in Massachusetts, did this experience have anything, did it, did it register in terms of your own thinking on this? Did you say, gee, how do you deal with these things if you don't have the ability to get, I mean, did it, was it a factor? Yeah, of course, David. Uh, th- this, and, and I had served in my church as a, uh, as a pastor. Uh, my church doesn't have a paid ministry, and so I'd served as a pastor for uh, a congregation or two, actually. And and there had been people in our congregation that had become very ill or had reversals of one kind or another. And I wondered, how can they make it without uh, some kind of insurance to help them through difficult times? And, uh, and because the medical bills can become overwhelming and daunting. And in a lot of respects, people are stabilized in the emergency room and given the care necessary to keep them from dying immediately. But but uh, the kinds of cures you'd like to have, the long-term uh, uh, help that you'd like to have is not available to people without insurance in many cases. And so, yeah, I, I, I recognize... they do, I mean, sometimes... You know, my, uh, when my daughter started having seizures um, and they were uncontrollable, uh, we had all kinds of different medications. They were trying to stop the seizures. And the meds, even though I had insurance worth $1,000 a month out of pocket, I was making $38,000 a year as a reporter at the Chicago Tribune. And it was really frightening, you know. And this actually, when the president was thinking about doing health reform, you know, my job was to be the political advisor. And I'm saying, well, you know, seven presidents have tried, seven presidents have failed. I know how fraught the issue is politically. And my advice was, you know, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we should defer this. 
Um, but the other part of me was saying, I knew exactly why we needed to do it. I cried when, uh, Pastor, I'm sure you still have people who come up to you in Massachusetts who have insurance because of what because of what you did. It's, it, it's meaningful. There's, there's no question. It has an enormous uh, emotional impact for me. And you are right. Uh, as a matter of fact, my Secretary of Economic Affairs, after we left office, she was without work. She was looking for a new job. So she was temporarily unemployed. Did not would not have had insurance, but for the plan in Massachusetts that provided insurance for her, and she got brain cancer, yeah. and she needed, of course, extensive uh, operations and uh, and chemotherapy and so forth, which she says she would not have been able to have afforded were it not for the plan we put in place. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think people ought to have insurance, and just like your experience with President Obama, my colleague said for a Republican to be talking about getting everybody insured is not good politics. And I said, look, I can. I think I can see a pathway to get everybody insured, and I'm going to do it. I recognize just how critical this is in, in the lives of people who don't have care, and, and we could do a better job. And, and we also thought we could do it without having to spend more money. We thought we could take money from the free care pool we were already using mm-hmm. and devote that to helping people buy insurance if they couldn't afford it themselves. And uh, we're pretty pleased with what we were able to accomplish. So um, why do you think it's so, why has this become so acrimonious? Why, I mean, the word Obamacare or even Romney care, you know, when your opponents were trying to defeat you for the Republican nomination in 2012, well, Romney care was an antecedent of Obamacare and therefore he should be. So I often wondered whether that was why you guys didn't talk more about your record as governor because it was such a, radioactive thing within the Republican. Why is it so? Why is this such a controversial discussion? Well, I think a lot of people, uh, many of them in my party, are very concerned about the growing reach of the federal government. And uh, they're, uh, they're pleased with local and in some cases state governments, but they're very concerned about the federal government mandating how people have to live their lives. And, uh, and so anything that, that smacks of a federal government takeover or more intrusiveness into their lives uh, causes, in my view, an appropriate response, which is, wait a second, why can't we do a better job at the state level or at the local level, depending on the issue? And, um, and, and so Obamacare was seen as a, an effort by the federal government to reach its hand into the states and mandate how people have to live. But if we... I, I accept that that's the, the reaction that hmm. uh, it engendered, but... How do you get outside of the sort of these kinds of overheated discussions and say, okay, we've got a problem? Problem is, a lot of people are unsure. The system is is uh, is overburdened. Uh, you know, what do we do about it? And let's have a like reasoned discussion about it. how do you get to that point in our politics where you know everything isn't so nuclear in its. Uh, well, that's, that's an even bigger topic, which is why have we become less and less able to take on the challenges of the modern world? Why aren't we informing, reforming our entitlements? Why aren't we dealing with the, the massive debt the country has? Why aren't we really improving our schools? Why aren't we making higher education more affordable? Why aren't we dealing with uh, generational poverty? I mean, these are, these are things that have been around a long time. Immigration, why haven't we been able to make any progress on immigration? And, and, uh, and I think that all stems from a, a nation and a political class which has become more and more divided. 
and and the we all look at Washington and say, gosh, Washington is broken. They can't get anything done, and that's true. But Washington reflects the people who elected the representatives in Washington, and the nation is divided, and half the nation about is pulling in one direction, and the other part of the nation is pulling in the other, and uh, and not a lot is being able to be done, and a lot of, not a lot of discourse at the middle to find common ground. And, uh, I mean, I've got my own thoughts as to why that's happening and where that's headed. But ultimately, I think uh, you have to have a leader who uh, is able to rise above the, the division and call on the greater good, uh, educate people as to the, the course that, that must be taken, and uh, be willing to take a couple of, of, uh, of attacks coming from the other side and ultimately just put his head down and say, no, we're going we're gonna to come together and work together on this. Isn't the problem, though, not the attacks you take from the other side, but the attacks you take from your side? Yeah, there's, there's some of that, A lot too. of friendly fire. There's I no mean, question. I mean, you, you must be friendly with John Boehner. Mm. Um, he has some tire tread on his back, and the tire just didn't belong to uh, the Democratic side. It's like his own folks who sort of ran him out of there. What was your thought about all that when you saw uh, how this whole transpired? And by the way, I hear you're the... You're you're now the the guy everybody says you don't have to be a member of the house to be speaker of the house. Saying let's bring are Mitt you, Romney. Are you available, David? Maybe that's the answer. Yes. Well, you know what? I will serve if you can sell your Republican friends on the notion that I should be speaker of the house. Tell them I'm well, available. They might be. They might be willing I will to get, get you a leave the, from my university yeah. position. They might willing to get you away from advising Democrats <laughs> if they could accomplish that. So, uh, but. What that? What what is that? You know, because well, it seems like you've got a small group yeah, of people there yeah. who were kind of. Well, I think one of the advantages of having the White House, and particularly having a a, a president uh, who's popular within his or her own party, is that they have the capacity to a certain degree to discipline their own party, and 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 you know how that's done. We're going to raise money for your opposition. We're going to primary you. I'm going to come in into your district if you're not with me on this. Oh, and by the way. If you want this little project done, you know, you need a new courthouse, you need a bridge. I can and so help. that's a little tougher now, I have to tell yeah. you. I mean, you know, that, <laughs> yeah. we've, we've kind of reformed our way mm. into a position where those tools aren't as the available. I, I was one of the people who thought we should do that. And now I'm wondering, should we completely, uh, you know, disarm leaders from but you the ability can't, to... But you can't help on legislation. You can say, I know that you care very deeply about this particular issue. I'm going to champion that. Not that I'm going to change my vote on it, but I'm going to champion that with you. I'll appear at a fundraiser for XYZ cause that you care about. These, you, As the president, you have extraordinary power, particularly within your own party. It's limited, of course. I'm not saying it's, it's uh, dispositive, but it's substantial. And the challenge that my party has now is that we don't have a, a president that can oversee our party and can can rein in the the excesses and and some of the uh, um, the wings of the party, and and some of those wings have become pretty aggressive, pretty uh, outspoken, and and I think. Uh, John Boehner looked at that and said, gosh, I can't get as much done as I'd like to get done. Maybe someone else can do better. Do you, did you have sympathy for him? Oh, sure. I mean, if you look at his record, he's accomplished a, a great deal from the standpoint of Republican principles. Federal spending has slowed dramatically during his period as the um, uh, Speaker of the House. And, and uh, that and other things uh, are to his credit. But there are others who feel he should have done more and could have accomplished more. And the answer is now, all right, give them a chance. Uh, put up or shut up. And um, uh, we'll see who Republicans select as a speaker, but it's going to be a challenge. Not going to be Mitt Romney, huh? Uh, no, I, I, I'm, uh, 
as you know, I'm a, a big fan of, of Paul Ryan. I think he's an extraordinary uh, individual with great capacity. Uh, would love to see him in any leadership role he wanted to take. I don't know whether I thought you the liked right... the guy. You want him to be Speaker of the House? What I'm, kind of a, where's the I'm love not, and affection? I'm not saying, I, said, I didn't say I wanted to Speaker of the House. I said any role he'd like to take. Because <laughs> in some respects, he, he is, he's the kind of person I'd like to see as president someday. And I'm not sure being Speaker of the House uh, opens the pathway to the presidency or, or closes it off. Mm-hmm. So it's something he's going to have to evaluate. Well, he's, he's probably sought your counsel. You're like, uh, you, you guys are obviously close. One thing that struck me, was that there was a genuine affinity between you two when you were campaigning together. Um, so I'm sure he sought your counsel. He's getting a lot of it. I have to tell you, I mean, I travel in political circles, Republican and Democrat. I don't know anybody who's saying, Matt, who likes the guy, is saying, gee, he ought to, he ought to take that job. Yeah, I think people look and say, um, uh, you know, he's a brilliant policy guy, and he has a, a leadership uh, potential that could be extraordinarily valuable for our party and for our country. And uh, if he steps into the speaker's position, they're asking the question, will those, uh, those great strengths be uh, uh, weakened or perhaps even uh, canceled down the road? And, and uh, that would be very unfortunate. On the other hand, um, uh, he may blaze a new trail and show that uh, he has the kind of leadership capacity to get things done, in which case new doors would be open to him. Well, he'll, yeah. he'll have to make What do you think decision. the likelihood of that is? Uh, I, under I, these circumstances, I think, I think it's very difficult under these circumstances to uh, uh, to satisfy those who want uh, action immediately, um, uh, and and uh, I, I do feel that 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 we have to have a political system which looks for common ground, that finds a way to see if there aren't some places where Republicans and Democrats actually agree, and where those things occur make progress. I think it's harder if we're going to say. Um, unless you go along with us, in this, in this case, I'm talking about a small minority of my own party, unless you go along with us, we're going to close down government or we're not going to vote for uh, key measures that are important to others. Um, that, I think, is the less uh, likely course to be productive. Um, so you say without a president, you don't have those tools. Um, your party has had a hard time uh, in, in national elections, in part because of this. Let me put this in this perspective. When we lost the midterm elections, we being the Democrats, in 2010, and we did it, as you'll remember, in spectacular fashion. We lost 63 seats in the House. I remember well. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, I said to the president the next day, I think the seeds of your reelection have just been planted. And he looked at me like I was nuts. You know the old story about Lady Clementine and Churchill where he lost the prime ministership and she said, this is a blessing in disguise. And he said, well, it's rather well disguised. And uh, so, but the reason I felt that way was because I felt that the election had empowered some, you know, uh, basically um, very strident voices, uh, anti-government populists rather than governing conservatives, and that whoever ran was going to have to satisfy um, factions within the party to be the nominee that would make it very difficult to win a general election. And I, it seems to me you're still in that same spot. I mean, you know, you basically, uh, you were the governor of a, uh, of a pretty liberal state. You got elected as a kind of moderate Republican. Probably if you had run uh, at, as that, you'd be a strong general election candidate. 
in this country. But you can't run like that and get nominated in your party. How do you overcome that? I think I was elected in part because people wanted someone who was a fiscal conservative who would rein in the the uh, excesses of government, and that was in Massachusetts. and And I think that pairs and on other well. stuff on on, on I think uh, on social issues. On social issues. I think on social issues. Are, yeah. Social issues. Uh, Massachusetts is certainly on the on the liberal side of things, and, and you, that's and it. you passed muster with voters there who didn't feel like you were going to make those the 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 fulcrum of your. Uh, administration. Um, but when you ran for president, I think back to those kind of crazy Republican debates and some of the stuff that happened there. Um, you know, the self-deportation thing, which I'm sure was not in your plan to uh, to say that. Uh, but you kind of, you know, that's the way the debate went. And in these things, uh, one or two words gets a life of their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it made it tougher you know, and I mean, I watched it from the other side as a strategist, and I thought, man, these guys are boxing themselves out of the general election. Uh, and I have to tell you, it seems to me I see the same thing going on right now. You have, I mean, you must have some, having walked that gauntlet, uh, you must have some concerns about that now as you watch this whole thing unfold, Donald Trump and all of that. Well, I, I actually have the concerns, um, not so much concerns, but the observations on the other side of the aisle, which is I watched the first Democrat debate. And uh, and watch Bernie Sanders, who I knew would take some relatively uh, extreme positions. But it struck me that Hillary Clinton was going along with a lot of them, or at least not pushing back as hard as I might have expected. And it seemed to me that in the Democratic Party, there is a real move to push the person who would have been towards the center of the Democratic Party off to the left. I think the Democratic Party Although has, she gave a pretty stout defense of capitalism there. Uh, I, that You call that stout? Well, it depends <laughs> I, on your I, perspective, I was going to say, I, I expected her to say, wait a second. Now, she, she, she did okay. She said, you know, the, this system, she didn't mention capitalism, but this system has created the largest middle class in the history of the earth. And that, that was seems a very, pretty rousing. That, that, that was very well said. But there's a lot more you could say about free enterprise and how it's lifted hundreds of millions of people around the world out of poverty and and made America the most powerful economic engine in the world. But there's no question but that, that, that in our political system right now, that the extremes within our respective parties are having a louder and louder voice and, and demanding more attention and, and demanding immediate action as opposed to collaborative action. And, and that in my view, it it flows in part from the change in the world of media. There, There was a time when we all got our news uh, with the same facts, if you will. We had three networks that we watched for the evening news. We mostly got newspapers. Almost everybody uh, in middle class uh, got a newspaper. And so we got the same facts, whether we agreed or not with it, we got the same facts, and then we could pull in different directions. Now, I mean, my sons, I don't think any one of them gets a newspaper. I mean, they, I've got yeah, five boys. No, they, nor do mine. Yeah, all right. They, they, they get their news on the web, right. and they tend to read those things which... Um, uh, which they agree with. I know even places like uh, like Maybe Google, my kids and your kids should sw- switch uh, reading habits yeah, for a week. It'd be interesting. Yeah, I mean, Google, for instance, it looks at what you've been reading last and then it gives you articles that they think you'll enjoy. So you're not seeing the right. other side. If you watch the news, some of us will watch Fox, some will watch MSNBC. So we're not even getting the same facts. And then we have commentators who are... Um, hyperbolic in expressing their views on issues, and people are becoming more and more divided. I saw a poll of Democrats. Uh, the number of people in the Democratic Party who consider themselves liberal has gone from like 27% to about 45 or some odd percent. 
And in my party, there are more and more who feel that they're uh, more uh, uh, insurgent, if you will, than those that are towards the center of my party. And I think that divisiveness is one of the things that's led to Washington having such a hard time getting things done. But let's 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 I want to talk practical. I'm an old political hack. So Mm, I go right mm. to the politics of all of this. Um, The uh, uh, the, you know, I accept and you I'm not surprised that you didn't agree with a lot of what was said on the stage in Vegas. But if you look at polling, um, the majority of Americans actually think that there should be. Uh, a greater uh, contribution from the wealthiest Americans. Uh, that's a popular position. Most Americans, or it's at least very close. In the Democratic Party, it's it's probably um, a majority are n- not happy about the uh, TPP, the trade treaty that the president is trying to uh, adopt for, uh, with Asia. Um, and so, you know, a lot, Bernie Sanders um, and Hillary Clinton uh, may seem extreme to from your vantage point, but on just as an electoral matter, I, I think if you tested a lot of the positions they took, they would they would do pretty well generally in a general election. So my question is, like, I don't think in a general election most people like you got an you got in a jam for using the the phrase self deportation. That is like it's mild compared to what Donald Trump has been saying about immigrants. Um, knowing the problems that that created for you in a general election, did you cringe a little when you heard um, <clears throat> where he was taking the debate? A couple Excuse topics me. there let me respond to. Um, uh, one, I think uh, Donald Trump has said a number of things which are uh, hurtful, um, and he has said they were childish uh, in some respects, and I think will be... Uh, Potentially problematic in a in a uh, either in a primary or in a general election if he were to become the nominee, um, uh, and they relate to things he said about women and things he said about uh, members of the news media, um, things he said about uh, Hispanics. Uh, I think uh, he he he'll have some uh, challenges if he proceeds to the next stage. Um, but going back to the the Democratic debate, what about the party itself? Does the party get tainted? Yeah, I think to a degree it does. Um, you know, I think things that were said by certain Republicans during uh, my general election race in 2012 were uh, colored uh, the perception of the Republican Party, may have caused some people to stay home or just to say they couldn't vote for Republican. There's always that. I'm not sure how big that is as a, He's a, a, big as a factor. He, oh, yeah, Donald Trump is a big megaphone. And I think that some of the things he said, particularly about uh, Hispanics, will uh, will be problematic, certainly for him if he were to go to the next stage. But for whoever our nominee is, uh, now, if our nominee uh, happened to be someone like Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush, who have strong Hispanic uh, roots themselves and connections themselves, that might not be as big an issue. But if it were uh, someone else who didn't have those connections, why it could probably remain as a a shadow over their their campaign. Uh, On the Democratic side, there's no question but that populism is very popular, hence the the term, as the word word suggests. (laughs) Um, but I think what has happened is that in our nation's history, we have had leaders that have not called on selfishness or, or called on a jealousy and envy, but have called on the American people to rise above themselves. Uh, the, the greatest uh, statement in this regard came from JFK, ask not what the country can do for you, but what you can do for the country. And, and, and we as a, the American people over our history have selected presidents who made us better than ourselves 
who called on our better selves. And there's no question but that what Bernie uh, was saying and what Hillary Clinton, uh, to a degree, agreed with from time to time were things that said, hey, let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. And that's very popular. Will it ultimately lead to the presidency? That's, you know, we'll find out in 2016. But I think it would be unfortunate if we began electing people uh, based upon um, uh, uh, what what is immediately popular as opposed to what is necessary and essential to keep America the greatest nation in the history of the earth, providing education and opportunity uh, for our children and for theirs. So, <clears throat> and you and I talked about this uh, out in, uh, in uh, Utah a little uh, last spring. We, y- there, is, there is a reason why people uh, are responsive uh, to populism. Uh, 90% of Americans haven't really effectively had a raise in 22 years. The median income is about what it was in 1999. So even we have the situation where we continue to grow, uh, but <clears throat> people aren't seeing the benefit of that. And you and I both believe in the same value. I mean, I, I mentioned to you, my, my father was an immigrant, came here for freedom and opportunity, uh, as so many others have. Uh, and that value is that if you work hard, you can get ahead. Mm-hmm. And all over the country, you've got people who are working hard and they don't feel like they're getting ahead. So... What do we do about that? That's the key thing, because I think you're absolutely right that there are a lot of people who are understandably and appropriately angry with the fact that they're working hard and they haven't seen any real increase in wages or salaries over the past three or four decades. And they're wondering, what's what's wrong here? Now, you probably have to stop and say, let's look and understand why that is. And part of that, of course, is that what, some several hundred million, as many as 800 million new workers came into the, the global workforce uh, from China and India and other parts of the world, making many of the products we used to make ourselves. Now it's being done on a global basis. So there's been this huge expansion, supply, if you will, of labor. Which is one reason why trade is so... Unbiased. Such a hot, such a hot issue. And, uh, and so that's a, a big... We basically doubled the workforce of the world and, uh, and that kind of, of supply has meant a real pressure on the demand for, um, uh, for higher wages. Now, the question right now is, how are you going to help people in the middle class get rising incomes again? And one idea, which is very popular, is let's take it from the rich guys. All right? Now, uh, it, the problem is, is as um, Margaret Thatcher said, sooner or later you run out of other people's money. That's not a, that's not a permanent way to help people have real income increases for the vast majority of Americans. My view, and the reason I'm a Republican, is that I believe Republican principles are designed to help middle-income people see rising incomes. How is that? Well, the best way I know to get real incomes to go up is to make America such an attractive place for entrepreneurs and innovators, big companies, small companies, is so that they grow, they hire more people. As they hire more people, there's more competition for labor, and the price of labor goes up. That's the only way I know to create real wage and real salary increase for the American worker. And, and that's why I believe that you have to look for, uh, for ways to make America more attractive for investment and for growth 
so that we can actually see those uh, those job numbers come up. I, I'm not a big growth guy because I want to see rich people get richer. Rich people do real well. As a matter of fact, the rich have done real <laughs> well under President well. Obama. Yeah. I mean, the, the president's policies. Oh, he policy, would say that too? Yeah, the, the president's policies and the So where's the policies, gratitude? <laughs> well, I think I think wealthy give more money to your party than to my party, but that's another matter. I mean, if you look if, if you look at the at the Hollywood and, and the sports world and, and a lot of uh, at the high tech world, wow. uh, a lot of Democrats, a lot of big. We, we, mean, this isn't for this program. We could go deep. Oh, well, I think we could much, go oligarch how, for oligarch, and we'd run out a lot faster how, how, than you. How much more money did Hillary Clinton uh, will she have than the Republican? Two to one? No, I don't. I don't think so. Yeah. I really don't think so. Well, I don't. But that's. But that's, that's neither a, here nor that's there. A, that's a yeah, side. That's, that's a, a side. A side, a side fun. Yes. Uh, but it's. But well, I did listen to Bernie talk about all the billionaires, and it's like, well, wait a second. Is your party going to have less money or more money in the general or equal? And it's going to be equal or more. His party will have at the general election. They Democrats get just as much, if not more, than Republicans. But. Uh, we, but the real, but the real donors. The real know. issue. That's true. That well, and a lot of unions that just as soon not be donors, but that are <laughs> required to be donors. But put that aside for a moment. The, the real issue is how do you help middle income families? And the, if you look around the world and you look at our own history, the only way you can help people have rising wages is by having more jobs created. So there's competition for labor, and the price of labor goes up, and people get higher wages. And that's why I'm so focused and members of my party are so focused on saying, how do we make sure and bring businesses here, see them expand here, see entrepreneurs want to live in America as opposed to leave? When you have this idea that corporations are incorporating outside the U.S. to avoid being in the U.S., that says, guess what? We got a problem because ultimately that means jobs are going to go outside this country. And that is bad but, for labor. But, but- but Governor, you 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 said, and you're right that this has been, and this is why we should take it out of the realm of partisanship. We've had this problem through Democratic administrations, Republican administrations, through high tide and and low. Yeah, we've had yeah. we've had a big expansion here. We've had 67, I forget the exact number of months of job growth and so on. And we've had other periods where we were doing well. But the the reality is, you've got technology, you've got uh, globalization, as you point out, you you you've been brilliant at uh, making companies uh, uh, profitable. But uh, one of the ways you do that is you reduce your labor costs, and you can do that with automation. You can do that with offshoring of jobs. Where I think it's being it's less it's a less valuable tool now because income uh, are going up overseas. But it seems like there's a structural problem here. So you know, I mean. I can make a government argument. You can make a, 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 a you know a free enterprise argument, but it seems like there's a structural thing in our economy, in the modern economy, where a lot of particularly uh, uh, jobs that require less education, middle class jobs, have vanished uh, because they or, can be or, done or are being filled from other countries. Right, right? globalization and technology right. both. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it seems like that is a you know we can get into sort of the left right kind of paradigm but this seems like a well then the question is what what to do about that because you're absolutely you're absolutely right that is happening and i think that will continue to happen i mean productivity by its definition says making more stuff with fewer labor hours and so productivity rising means more stuff being made with fewer and fewer hours and and this is an ongoing phenomenon so the question is how do you deal with that and if the answer is well we'll tax wealthy people more 
Well, that's fine. Uh, if for those who want to do that, I'm opposed to that idea. Right. But, but 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 it does but, mean it may mean training people better. But it's like but it's like that get, making, getting that, people yeah. greater and so, and that's, that's that there are costs associated with that. Those, so shouldn't those shouldn't, are the shouldn't, that, you've hit on the right kind of answers, which yeah. is give people the skills they need to compete for the jobs of tomorrow and the jobs of today, and make sure that our country is the place people want to come to begin new enterprises so that there is demand for those jobs. And we're doing pretty well. We've made some progress. But but if if what I heard from Bernie Sanders were the case, you'd see people fleeing this country, going elsewhere, meaning the entrepreneurs. You know, I, I read a, a story the other day that, that of the top 25 tech companies in America, the most valuable 25 tech companies in America, 60% of them were started by immigrants of the first or second generation in this country. We have attracted the best and brightest minds and entrepreneurs from around the world. I want them here. I want them to come here. I want America to be a magnet for entrepreneurs and Talk innovators. Talk to Donald Trump about that. And, and because because <laughs> if we if we do that, then, by the way, I'm not so concerned about those, how many, you know, 15 or 20 entrepreneurs and how rich they get. Some people think, oh, we got to take their money away. I say, no, no, we got to bring them here. So that they create businesses that employ a lot of people, and we can raise the wages and salaries of middle-income families. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that my my point is that we do need to do things to help people, give people the tools to sure. compete in this kind of economy. That does cost money, and why not ask the folks who have gotten all the upside of the economy lately uh, to pitch in a little to help. Uh, provide those kinds of tools for people so they can make the most of their own lives. Well, that was the argument for for the president's uh, uh, raising taxes on higher income people, um, uh, which is something he did as Bush, Bush tax cuts expired. So he, he did raise quite substantially the taxes on higher income people. And interestingly, that didn't do anything for, uh, for bringing people from the bottom uh, quintiles up to higher levels of income. That the, <clears throat> if, 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 uh, uh, if there are ways to improve the quality of training and opportunity for people in America, I'm all for it. And we can find ways to, to make that work economically. I happen to think, by the way, that education is an area where we can be far more efficient. And the president said it, that too, but I, I, I'm sure. I mean, I think we're, if, you, if you look in our economy at places where, where, if you will, output per person has gotten greater and greater and greater, that's throughout the economy, except in a couple of places that are dominated by government. Healthcare and education, we have virtually no productivity improvement of any substance in the in the education sphere, and, and that that has to change. There's a guy named Mark Andreessen who was the founder of Netscape and a brilliant venture capitalist. He said, "Software eats everything. Software is changing every enterprise in America. It hasn't really changed education yet, and to a certain degree, hasn't had the impact on healthcare it should." Although you you see big changes in healthcare, there are yes. efficiencies that have yes. been. Especially but in slow. the last few years. Yes, but it's, but it, it's going to come along, but it's it's so far beyond where it will be. Likewise, education. Education should have far more advantage taken of technology, cyber learning, learning from faculty around the, the world and around the nation. Um, we're still using an antiquated method, which is very expensive and, and really keeps a lot of middle-income families from being able to afford the kind of education their kids deserve. Of course, teachers are middle-income families too. Absolutely, uh, and and uh, I guess the question is always: if you can find a way to do something with fewer people that provides a better product or the same product with fewer people, do you want to do it or not? So, when they invented the tractor, 
Did you say, well, this is a bad thing because we're going to have all these people who work on the farms no longer have jobs, so we better not allow the tractor to go on those fields. It's like, no, you, you welcome the tractor. It creates greater productivity, and those people will be given new training and new experience and new education over decades, obviously, to fill the new jobs of tomorrow. Our economy will be ever-changing. 30, 40 years ago, we didn't have the kinds of enterprises we have today. We're a far more entrepreneurial nation than we've ever been before, and the, the economy has demanded that. It's a, it's, uh, it's, whether you call it a good thing or a bad thing, it's a real thing. No, I know. I, look, I, I accept that. I just think that there are impacts of it that really does need a lot of attention because you've got no millions and millions and millions of Americans who don't feel like they're getting uh, the upside of this economy, who feel like they're working harder, who are and worried. they're right. Yeah. They're absolutely right. What, what, what has happened is by the Fed and the president holding interest rates uh, at almost zero, it has meant the stock market has taken off and created extraordinary wealth for the wealthiest people who have money in the stock market. And uh, and so you've seen over the past uh, seven years, as we have held interest rates near zero to, uh, to help build the economy, you've seen the wealthy people get extraordinarily wealthier. And, uh, and a lot of people understandably say, hey, what happened to me? How come I'm not part of that? And, and I think that's a very valid question. And I think the right answer is to say, look, we need to help create more economic opportunity for the middle class in America. That, of course, includes education, but it also includes making sure that we create the environment that companies, meaning people who hire folks, don't leave America, don't want to leave America, but instead want to invest more in America, bring more jobs to America. That will create the kind of competition that leads to rising incomes. The uh, I just want to do a, a minute more on this because I don't. We can get so we can talk for hours on this <laughs> yeah. on this subject. The uh, the thing that worries me, and I said this to you when I saw you last spring, is that it's it feels like we're a short term society now. We've got mm. corporations that are g- managing to the quarterly report because they have obligations to their shareholders and they're trying to maximize benefits to their shareholders. You've got government that's managing to the next uh, election. Mm. And so, and, and long-term decisions are sort of being it's a real deferred. Challenge. It's a real challenge. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. I, I happened to uh, sit with a Chinese leader some years ago when I was serving in Massachusetts, and, and, uh, and, and he felt that democracy would fail because of our short-term orientation, where, where people demanded immediate uh, response, and they in China were able to look at the very long-term and make decisions based on the best interests of their people over a very long period of time. Now, we have fortunately had leaders in our country over the 200 years or over 200 years of American history that have looked at the long term and the American people have sided with them and done what's right for America long term. But uh, but the short term orientation in corporate America and in political America is a real challenge. And, and how to avoid that is a real question. I mean, it used to be in corporations, for instance, people were shareholders for years and years and years. You'd go to a shareholder meeting, you saw the same faces year after year. People who made a long-term investment uh, uh, in, a, in a particular company felt associated with a management team and so forth. Now people come in and out like crazy, day traders and big uh, uh, hedge funds and so forth. And there isn't the kind of commitment to enterprises that there used to be. I mean, I saw the battle at DuPont. I'm not terribly close to that, but uh, you know, I understand the question is, are they going to cut back on R&D 
Or are they going to keep investing in R&D? Right. R&D pays off over decades. Right. And, but we're seeing it, this across corporate America. Yeah, and if you, if you cut R&D, well, you can get your earnings up this quarter and maybe make some money for today's shareholders. But how about for America? And uh, I, I think the, the short-term orientation is a real challenge, both in the corporate world and the political world. On the presidential race, um, you know, you you had a brief flirtation. There were people talking to you about getting in. You were talking to people about getting in. By all accounts, uh, there was a lot of support for Governor Bush at the time. He raised a lot of money from people who had been supporters of yours. What What's happened to him in this race? He doesn't seem to be getting traction. Why do you think that is? Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I think I think the Trump phenomena uh, has surprised a lot of people, myself included. I would have never imagined that Donald Trump would have the level of support he has had and continues to have. Come on, he's huge. And and, and uh, Ben Carson uh, as well has received extraordinary support. And I think that had to surprise a lot of folks. My own reaction was that at the first debate, people should have just ignored uh, uh, Donald Trump. Well, obviously, that was the wrong <laughs> inclination. He, yeah. uh, if, that's hard to do. Uh, obviously, that's hard to do. And, and he has been a far more compelling candidate uh, than, uh, than I would have expected. And I'm sure than that Bush people would have expected. And so they're probably having to look at their plans and decide who they're going to run ads. But even among the and, even among the sort of center right governing conservative core, he's not done particularly well. Is there a stylistic issue? What is it? I, I, I'm not going to uh, you know uh, check off the strengths and weaknesses of all the candidates running. We have, I think, one of the things that makes it difficult for mainstream Republicans is how many able mainstream Republicans we have running. I mean, you know, I looked at the Democrat debate and, and um, it, it was a very small field. And uh, in terms of really serious candidates with a good deal of potential, it was a very, very small field. And uh, I look at our debates and, you know, we have to have two of them. We have to have. And, it, yes. and in, the, in, the, in the, you know, the, the, uh, the junior debate, if you will, we have United States senators, governors. We have very capable. And people. among the leaders, you have people who've never served. Yeah. Yeah. So I, what does that tell you? Uh, it tells us that people in in uh, this country are very anxious for dramatic change and not happy with what's happening in Washington. And uh, they want to see something happen. They want to see something get done. And uh, uh, one of Mr. Trump's uh, 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 capabilities is, is communicating that he can get things done. And that's something which people want to see happen. And therefore, he's getting a lot of support. Do you, can he? Um uh, time will tell. Um, I, I, I <laughs> still I have frankly, old chops. Huh? I, I frankly, <laughs> I frankly think that that it is helpful to have someone who has more extensive experience um, in in government and in in leadership roles, uh, serving as the the uh, leader of our country. You go back a long time to find somebody who had not had any public sector service as a president, and it would probably be Dwight Eisenhower. But if there's anything political, it's the U.S. military. And he certainly had political experience. And, and leadership experience. And leadership experience of uh, Saving magnitude. Western civilization seems like yeah, a I think good that, qualification. I think that, I think that qualifies for, for, uh, yeah. for presidential leadership. You obviously still have a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, do you see any scenario in which you would re-enter politics in any way? I mean, uh, you know, you sometimes sometimes people are they are looking at this uh, rather desultory Republican process, and all of a sudden— uh, they're very nostalgic uh, uh, for you. Uh, can you can you see that? Uh, I don't see that. Uh, the uh, the unavailable is typically the most attractive, 
And uh, I, I are you enjoying that? I, I appreciate the few people who say nice things about me and uh, and 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 say, "Gee, you were right about this, or you were right about that." But frankly, I spend my time looking ahead. I've got 23 grandkids, and I'm concerned about what the world is going to be like for them. And uh, there's no question in my mind, but that America is going to remain an economic powerhouse, the economic powerhouse over the coming several decades, and maybe longer. Um, and I and I mean that in all earnestness. That's not just political talk. I think our uh, our technology base, on our entrepreneurship, our financial system, our regulatory system—you put it all together. It's not—it's not perfect, but it's a heck of a lot better than most of the other places in the world. And and if we don't mess it up, we can be the economic powerhouse. The question is, what are we going to do with that power? How are we going to share it with our people within the country? How do we make sure that everybody participates in that? How can we protect our freedom? How can we protect our ability to trade around the world? Uh, as opposed to having the world closed down the way uh, it was under the Cold War. Um, there are- <laughs> I'm just laughing because I asked you whether you could see yourself getting back into politics. You said no. And then now you're giving me a pretty uh, rousing speech about where we need to go as a country. And I think, boy, uh, old habits die hard. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I still care about the same things, David, that I cared about when I ran for office. I, I just don't see it at, at, uh, at this stage that I'm going to be involved in elective office again. Well, but I'm going to keep on. I'm going to keep on fighting for the things I believe in, and trying to encourage people in my party to adopt policies that actually make sense and that will keep our, our country strong and preserve the things we care about. Um, but you know, I, I don't have the, the the microphone I used to have. And uh, I mean, I used well, to have. You're on 20, the Axe Files. I was, was going to say that's letters. right. We're we're here on the podcast, yes. and I used to have like 20 cameras in front of me. Yes. <laughs> the world has changed. <laughs> you, you'll be surprised how much of a megaphone this is. You, <laughs> the whole world will be listening to this short. <laughs> I hope so. You've been very generous with your time and generous coming to the Institute of Politics. We're trying to inspire young people to get into the arena across the political spectrum, and it means so much to them to have a chance to spend time with. Uh, someone like you who's been at the very top of this uh, of, of this an- enterprise of, of politics, of this uh, endeavor of politics. So thank you for all of that. Certainly welcome, and I'm happy to uh, encourage young people to uh, get involved earlier than I did. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't run until I was in my 50s, and uh, I think um, political involvement, perhaps not necessarily as a, uh, an elected official, but involvement in campaigns, uh, involvement in issues that you uh, uh, pursue uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, and try and help get it accomplished, those are things that make a lot of sense for young people to consider from a very early time in their life. I agree. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 